I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. How to invite people to live life in public is a special talent of Jeff Rison. He is partner and managing director of Gale Studio, the U.S. subsidiary of Gale Architects Copenhagen, where he oversees design, planning, and research projects throughout the Americas. Gale has worked with cities worldwide to use public space to shape public life. Jeff, when you see a public space without people in it, no one's using it, what is the first remedy that comes to mind? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there isn't a uh, a single remedy to try to activate it. But the first thing that comes to me is to try to understand why that is the case. You know, I want to understand if other places nearby are more lively. Uh, where are all the people? Are they inside? Are they in some other public space? So it's it's about trying to understand the conditions that uh, have led to that place not being very active. And you understand that how? Well, we've uh, developed a, a methodology uh, that Yan Gale really began, uh, I guess, almost 50 years ago now. Uh, that's really, it's, it's almost a form of architectural ethnography. And, and what it is, is it a series of observational analysis tools that try to understand how the built environment is impacting the, the, the life that we see in public spaces. So we you know, monitor and observe what activities people are doing in public space, who's partaking in them, uh, their age, their gender, and also try to understand then the quality of the environment that's either inviting for that activity or maybe in some cases hindering it. So it's the relationship between built form and life, uh, or almost between the planned and the lived, that we really try to analyze to understand what can be done to invite more people to spend time or or what can be done to maybe remove some barriers to let different types of activities and culture flourish. Give me an example of a transformation of a space that once was dead and now is lively. What, what are the steps that you went through to get from the prior condition to the to the latter condition? So a lot of it is this, uh, you know, first really trying to understand that relationship between the built environment and 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 public life. So it begins with uh, this form of assessment, measuring both quantitatively and qualitatively some of these aspects of, of life. So it's also about how long people are staying, what part of the day, what type of the season. And then when we juxtapose that with this you know, understanding of how the built environment's functioning, now we've, we've made some things that maybe were underneath the surface uh, more visible. You know, everyday, everyday routines, people's habits, in general their behavior are now more visible. And so we can use those to inform design decisions. And then, you know, the key, ideally, if we have an opportunity to to test some of those design decisions. So rather than just going into, you know, making a very elaborate plan, the sooner that, you know, we can try a, a catalytic pilot or a prototype project, uh, insert that in the space, and then go and observe it again and see how, whether that invites for certain behaviors and who takes that invitation. And then basically we can, you know, hopefully scale that up and, and see if we can make some recommendations or, or a design toolkit to both help, you know, maybe insert different, more permanent forms of, of public space interventions, or maybe, you know, make subtle adjustments to the immediate building edge uh, around that space, or maybe even think much more broader, you know, in terms of the, the links and routes and the other connecting points uh, to that space.
I'm really interested in your use of the word catalytic. Jeff, because, you know, we would all like for the things we do to be catalytic. Uh, and yet, you know, often you have a design intervention, especially, um, you know, you talk about the uh, opportunity to test. And so you think about some of the the temporary interventions that are that are made. And yet they never many of them never scale. Right. They never have that catalytic effect. They may be successful in their own right, but they don't lead to, to, to something bigger. They don't scale. What's the secret to that? Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of it is, is really the purpose of that, uh, of that prototype or of that test. I think what's, what's happened, unfortunately in the U S especially is to some extent, the tactical urbanism movement has become an ends rather than a means and so I think if we treat it more of a means to understand our community a little bit more, to make wiser strategic planning decisions, to be more precise and careful about how we invest our money uh, on permanent projects or on programming. So I think you almost have to say from the very beginning, what's important is that if you conceive these projects as more of a test, as more of a catalyst to try to see what happens. So what it takes is that you insert something, then you have to measure it. Uh, then you have to be paying attention to what happens, what works and what doesn't, and then you can refine it. And so if you think it more of a, as an iterative process that is informing a broader, bigger vision that has wider community development goals, then I think those, those small projects become much more powerful when they're framed in terms of a, uh, of a larger concept or idea. How do you know when a place is successful? What does success look like? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, unfortunately, the, again, that's one of those uh, that's one of those questions where there's not there's no single magic solution. What we try to do is understand well, what are the needs uh, of that local community, and help them sort of by collecting some of this data and information, become a little bit more purposeful in uh, expressing what their community goals are. And so, if we can help the local stakeholders in the neighborhood, uh, shop owners, business owners, whatever it might be help them express what their local success criteria is, um, and then hopefully using our experience and expertise, add to that a little bit or, or challenge them or invite them to think a little broader, a little bit bigger, then hopefully what we do is we're, we're creating a process in which each individual location in place can, can set their own success criteria, and you know hopefully we can help them achieve it. I, I like the fact you, you, you talk about consultation which of course seems to be now part of any publicly funded project for certain or any project, really private project that needs public support uh, or approval. And yet sometimes it just seems like the public process is just about no, it's about uh, nimbyism or it's about, you know, sort of dumbing down projects to try to please everyone. It makes me think of my um, advertising days when you'd take a, a bold ad into a focus group and inevitably, you know, you'd sort of kill it. Uh, because it wasn't familiar. Right. And you talk about, you know, we, we try to help people think bigger. Well, how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're totally right that all too often these engagement processes become, you know, maybe a little bit pro forma, like, oh, we had to do this, so we'll go out and we just hope, you know, we don't make too many people upset. So we need to be, you know, really changing the, the stage and the process in which we first engage with the community. If we can do that very early on, before we've already given, you know, 
made three design suggestions that we want their approval on. If we bring them very early in the process and, and, and maybe show them some of these results and say, hey, we've gone out and observed this neighborhood or this public space or this street. These are the things we saw. What do you guys think? Have we missed something? What was is usually present that we didn't see? So already there, we begin to establish, I think, a better relationship in the outreach process that's more about, let's understand how this place is currently working. And let's create some of these success criteria that I mentioned before. And now, you know, now we can start to talk about vision, about bigger ideas, ask them to provide some of that vision. Then we can go out and maybe make these prototypes. So it's about an engagement process that's probably a little longer, probably a little bit more based on trying to uh, insert the community's opinion and input to help formulate some of the design questions to help uh, establish the success criteria and then try to involve them in in the testing of those prototypes and i think what it's about is establishing or recalibrating the the relationship between citizen and decision maker and have it be much more on you know based on observation on use on these prototypes and much less about hey we've already been thinking about this problem for a year here's three different options which one do you like best or which one do you which one is the least worse <laughs> to you, right? Which oftentimes it is in traditional processes. Gale Architects is is associated, of course, with the transformation of uh, Copenhagen, the transformation of Melbourne, the transformation of New York to be more walkable, bikeable cities, to be cities where people, again, want to live life in public, where they want to be in public space. You know, you would think on the on the one hand, that would be very popular. Those would be very popular changes. And yet you meet resistance to them. I know you do. Uh, certainly you have in New York. Where does the resistance come from and how do you overcome that? And I think the resistance comes from change. You know, what what we're promoting and the work that we do and the work that Knight does and many other people um, in this space, although it's still more in the minority, is is basically challenge the status quo uh, and challenge some of the everyday conceptions. So I think that resistance is, is just based on change and like the natural sort of human response to having a little bit of a fear of change. I think what we try to do is use some of these tools that we developed, always really try to be true to the process in terms of, you know, not jumping to too many conclusions, not flying in someplace and thinking immediately that we have the answer, although we might get some hunches. So I think it's about really trying to respect sort of the limitations of the role of design, but also respecting the, the potential of it and thinking beyond purely design objects, but thinking about how design can help formulate experiences and help be catalytic, as we said before, or provide invitations for people to meet and interact. So I think you know, we have to we have to sort of address head on that resistance or that and that fear of change and be very honest with the with the community and, and with ourselves. And I think really try to reach out to as many different people as possible. Uh, and I mean that both in terms of the community and also in terms of different disciplines. Part of the problem with cities is that they've been thought of as, you know, this is the realm of purely only architects, engineers uh, and planners that that really shape cities. And I think you know, we can we can promote real change and, and real change that's much more inclusive if we also make sure that we include a lot of different disciplines in that discussion and then also make sure that we have tools and uh, methods to include a lot of different type of people. And that's really the beauty of this of this methodology is because, you know, people can participate in this process by purely taking part of their everyday routine. 
if they're on the street when we're out measuring and observing, they're participating. They count. They're being counted. And I think that you know meeting people where they are in terms of that engagement process also is really key to getting many different voices, to getting uh, much more robust and uh, inclusive solutions, which I think at the end of the day will be really key recipe for that type of change and for that type of challenging of the status quo that we're talking about. When you're starting one of these massive transformation projects, uh, such as the one that has occurred in New York, what is the most persuasive argument you can make to civic leaders and government officials as you as you try to start one of those transformations? You know, again, it, it needs to be a little bit of that multidisciplinary bit. You know, we have to we have to show on many different levels, economically, in terms of equity, in terms of health, that we basically need to create a burning platform to some extent that shows that their city or this district or this neighborhood is underperforming or could be performing better uh, as it relates to those to those different elements about, like I said, economics, health, inclusivity. The broader and more multifaceted we can we can understand how a place is is working or not working, is performing or underperforming. I think the the more effective we can be. Hopefully, I think in the case of New York, you know, our our contribution, one of the most important contributions to that process was helping to create that sense of urgency, you know, helping to frame some maybe simple observations quite clearly. You know, the fact that Times Square didn't have a square. <laughs> That's a relatively simple to understand concept and also something that people say, hey, you're right, that, uh, that it, there is no square there really, we should do something about that. Or, you know, trying to compare uh, how certain cities, how they compare or contrast to other places. Jeff, you've been testing some ideas about how to nudge strangers occupying the same space in a city into contact and exchange with one another. It's something we at night are really interested in. Tell me why you think that's important and your approach to the work. First off, I think, you know, nudge is a is an important word there, right? Or we like to talk about invitations. You know, we can't, you know, pretend or 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 try to think that just by us making a suggestion or drawing a design uh, that people will automatically behave as we predict. Uh, in fact, <laughs> people don't behave as either designers or computer models or whatever uh, usually predict. So what we try to think more about is providing those invitations, providing those nudges, as you mentioned. And we think that's important because really living in cities or living in thriving, uh, pleasant neighborhoods is, is really all about that coexistence uh, between different people. Uh, you know, there's a Icelandic saying that, that says, or, or I don't know exactly where it comes from, but, but man's greatest joy is man, essentially. You know, being in proximity with other people is something that really, you know, makes us, makes us happy. So for us to try to make sure that we provide invitations that are welcoming to as many different folks as possible, we really feel like that's, that's our mission, uh, so to speak. And so if we do our job, that job right and invite as many different people as possible, well, then there's going to be even more opportunities for the, that diversity, people from different socioeconomic groups, different races, ethnicity, religion, gender. If we can provide a broad and inclusive enough set of invitations, all those different types of people will, will hopefully meet and interact. And I think we'll be creating a, a, a richer, more enjoyable, more pleasant neighborhood. Can every city have a, pu a robust public life? 
I think every city can have a healthy public life, or maybe robust is the right word, a resilient public life. I think obviously not every place needs to be New York or Times Square, that every place can or should be. Quality of public life isn't just about quantity. You know, it's also about how long people stay. Like we talked before, the diversity of people that partake in that public life. I think if we frame it that way, if we're very explicit about, you know, this is about quality, this is about inclusivity, then I think absolutely. And, you know, every, every city, every community, every neighborhood should have a really active, vibrant uh, public life. What's the biggest obstacle to an active public life? I think there's a lot of them. I think probably the, one of the biggest obstacles is the way that we build our, <laughs> our cities. I mean, that's a big way to say it, right? But I mean, the fact that, you know, if we build in a way that's very, very low density or very, very spread out, build in a way that doesn't respond to the human scale, then, you know, people won't take those invitations. So if I could try to be more precise and identify the single biggest obstacle, I think it is the current paradigm of how we plan and finance and build a lot of our neighborhoods. They're based on a whole lot of really important factors having to do with economy, mobility, but they're not truly based on this people experience or on making sure that spaces between the building really invite and, and encourage for high quality of life. So if we can invert that, if we can insert some tools, some methods, some metrics, some uh, incentives to make sure that the way that we build and design communities and cities really is rooted in the human, in inviting them to spend time uh, in public space, then I think we'll achieve our goals. Because it's, it's certainly still possible to, to check all the other boxes, to have it be economically successful and still you know, financially viable and with people at the center. But the inverse of that isn't necessarily true. You know, If you just go for the financially viable and e economically opportunistic, you don't guarantee that's also good for people. So it seems like if we flip it around, put people in the center, it's an opportunity to really get, you know, win, 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 win solutions that are, of course, also good for the environment, conserve and, and optimize our uses of resources as well. Jeff, thanks for being our guest on Night Cities. Thank you. Jeff Rysom is partner and managing director of Gale Studio with offices in San Francisco and New York. You've been listening to Night Cities, a production of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Find out first when new conversations are posted by signing up for our newsletter at knightfoundation.org forward slash features forward slash Night Cities. And until November 14th, you can give us an idea for the Night Cities Challenge. You'll find more at nightcities.org. I'm Carol Coletta.